0: Tinakoto, no mai, hi ramai. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your host. I'm Marianne, thanks so much for joining me today, tonight Whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours Sit back, relax, let me be your guide As we walk into the Shadowlands together And see what awaits us there Space, the final frontier, words spoken from the narrator of that very old and well loved by many people TV series Star Trek, a show that spawned countless spin-off sci-fi shows and movies, words that have inspired generations of souls to want to study and explore the vast regions of our known solar system and universe, that perhaps have inspired countless others to question our reality as we currently know it, and most certainly have brought man's age-old question of are we alone in this universe to the forefront of the past few generations who grew up watching their shows. But, are we alone in the known universe, or the multiverses? If we are not, then what does life look like off of this planet and our current reality? Is life out there as diverse and interesting as the Star Trek and other sci fi spinners would have us believe? If there is, is this life as intelligent as man arguably is? Or vastly more intelligent? Do they look like us, humanoid in appearance? Are they carbon based life forms? So many, many questions. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to another episode of our Walking the Shadowlands podcast. If this is your first time listening, a special welcome. The past few episodes in this season seem to have followed a theme that actually was quite unintended. From our interview with producer James Fox, talking about his amazing documentary The Phenomenon two episodes ago, followed last episode with singer-songwriter Ed Roman talking about his experiences and his family sightings of UFOs. And finally, in this trio of UFO-related episodes, I have a very special guest, but his perspective comes entirely from the scientific community and is one that is very refreshing and honestly incredibly brave of him especially coming from a community that tends to stick rigidly to the status quo, and they don't often like to look outside the box to consider other alternatives. And moreover, a community that is not known for celebrating or supporting its members who dare to step outside of their paradigms of conventional knowledge, like Galileo did in his day. However, are you... Willing to walk with me into this part of the Shadowlands and see what awaits us there? Then let's begin. My guest today is Avi Loeb. He comes with very, very impressive scientific and scholarly credentials. Arthi is the Frank B. Bard, Jr. Professor of Science at the prestigious Harvard University. He has published four books and over 650 papers with an age index of 97 on a wide range of topics, including black holes, the first stars, the search for extraterrestrial life, and the future of the universe. He serves as chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy. Founding Director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and Director of the Institute for Theory and Computation, ITC, within the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. He also chairs the Advisory Committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative and serves as the Science Theory Director for All Initiatives of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. Avi serves as the Chair of the Board on Physics and Astronomy of the National Academies, which is the Academy's principal forum overseeing the Decadal Surveys in Physics and Astronomy. He's an elected Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society and the International Academy of Astronautics. In 2012, Time magazine selected Avi as one of the 25 most influential people in space. My guest, Avi Loeb. Avi or or professor? Yeah you can
1: call me Avi you know I'm just the same uh, kid that grew up on a farm that you read about that I don't need the titles don't worry
0: about it. Awesome Avi thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me and my listeners today I read your book on Oumuamua it's absolutely a great book and it raised a lot of questions for me that I'll bring up as we continue in our conversations. But perhaps first, for my listeners, you could give us a little bit about your background, your professional background, so it lays a a foundation for your conclusions.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Um, And um, uh, before arriving uh, to writing this book, uh, extraterrestrial that just appeared a few days ago. Um, Of course, I had the career in astrophysics, but going back all the way uh, to where I started, I grew up on a farm. Uh, So I'm a farm boy fundamentally, and I I still maintain that uh, uh, approach to everything I do. Uh, I was very connected to nature when I grew up. Um, I used to collect eggs every afternoon. We had chickens and uh, I used to drive the tractor to the hills. But my main passion was with philosophical questions, uh, trying to understand the big picture and ask the deepest questions we can ask. And uh, then circumstances uh, led me to physics. Uh, in Israel, I had to serve in the military at age 18, and uh, I preferred to do uh, something more intellectual than running in the field with uh, with a gun. And and mm-hmm. so I uh, I studied physics, finished my PhD at age 24, and then. Um, uh, ended up uh, uh, with uh, a PhD in physics that uh, allowed me to uh, get a, a postdoctoral fellowship at Princeton uh, under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. And uh, I had to study the vocabulary of astronomy. I didn't know much. I didn't know how the sun shines. And that allowed me to sort of reconstruct myself um, without the guidance of a mentor and Uh, independently, and uh, uh, until today, I I basically craft my own path uh, in in the field, and um, I I follow the uh, questions that are most interesting to me, and even though I uh, arrived uh, at this marriage to astrophysics uh, as a result of circumstances, I realized later after getting tenure at Harvard that I'm actually married to my true love. Because astrophysics offers us the opportunity to explore fundamental questions that used to be in the realm of philosophy, but using scientific tools. Mm -hmm. For example, we can ask, how did the universe start? Uh, How did life come to exist? Um, And whether we are alone? Uh, Some of these questions are discussed in the first chapter of the Old Testament, the Bible. Uh, They are so fundamental that humans wondered about them for thousands of years. But we now have the privilege of using modern science, using the scientific methodology and the instruments and telescopes that we have that allow us to answer these questions. And I find it fascinating. And frankly, even if I wasn't paid at all, I would still be excited about pursuing these questions. So it's a great privilege to be a scientist as far as I'm concerned, because you have the luxury of following your childhood curiosity. Um, You don't need to pretend that you know everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can, uh, based on the evidence that you see, you can try and figure out what the world is about. And uh, you know, you do it by trial and error. Sometimes you're wrong. You, You can allow yourself to make mistakes. And it's a learning experience. And that's what I find the most fun about doing science, that you don't need to pretend. Uh, You can just follow the evidence.
0: Right. For my listeners who may not know, can you please explain what an astrophysicist is and what you do?
1: (laughs) So um, what I do for a living is uh, think about the, the sky, what we see in the sky now. You might say, oh, the sky is just relatively, has a relatively superficial importance for our daily life. Uh, But that's not true because, uh, first of all, you know, we we are on this earth as a result of what happened out there. Uh, So the earth is one of many planets surrounding the sun. You know, If you go back to Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, he argued that the earth is at the center of the universe, that we are mm. at the center of the universe. And uh, for a thousand years, people believed his, his idea because it's flattering. It's flattering to our ego to be an important part of the universe. Everything mm. is centered on us. But then uh, Copernicus and Galileo realized that the earth is moving around the sun. And at first, philosophers refused to look through Galileo's telescope. He was looking at the sky. Again, this sky that appears to be completely secondary to everything that happens to us. And he realized that the Earth moves around the sun. We are not at the center of the universe. So the the entire worldview changed as a result of that. And at first, philosophers just didn't want to look through the telescope. That maintained their ignorance, didn't change reality. And now we know that the Earth moves around the sun, And the sun moves around the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So this entire setup of the scenery where we are situated changed. And we realize that we are not at the center of the universe. So that changes our perspective about reality. You know, we are not central to the physical universe. We are one out of billions of planets around billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And we are not special at all. And that Milky Way galaxy is one out of trillions of galaxies that we can see throughout the universe. So the number of planets similar to Earth orbiting a star similar to the sun, roughly at the same separation, is more than the number of grains of sand on all beaches on Earth. And how can anyone be arrogant uh, in, in his or her daily life? Uh, It makes no sense whatsoever. Even if you are an emperor or a king that conquered a piece of land on earth, it's just like an ant hugging a single grain of sand on this landscape of a huge beach. You cannot be arrogant. So it immediately brings implications of being modest in your daily life. And we live for such a short time, it turns out, relative to the age of the universe at large that we can figure out by observing the sky so altogether, the message we get from the sky is: stay humble, stay mm-hmm. modest. That's an extremely important message because if you are arrogant, you do things that could damage our future. And if you are modest and 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 you act accordingly, you you use science uh, to collaborate with other people and and build a better future. You know, so that's. Already tells you something that, you know, uh, astrophysics is important. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, you know, beyond that, there is the fundamental question. Are we alone or are there other creatures or, you know, uh, civilizations out there? And, um, you know, are we the smartest kid on the block if they are around? Uh, It's just like with my daughters, you know, when they were infants, my daughters tended to think that they're at the center of the world and that they have special qualities that nobody else has. But then they went to the kindergarten and they met other kids and they got a better perspective about themselves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in the scientific community, actually, not just in the general public, prefer to put blinders and say, let's not discuss, let's put a taboo on discussing the possibility that there are technological civilizations out there. Let's not even consider that. Or discuss it, or fund research on it, or encourage young people to work on it. Let's just forget about it, because they, you know, it, 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 it's linked to their ego. They want to feel special, unique.
0: Right. I really. You made. are we alone? You raised some good questions. You say that perhaps a more precise framing of the question would be this. Throughout the expanse of space and over the lifetime of the universe, are there now or have there ever been other sentient civilizations that, like ours, explore the stars and left evidence of their efforts? Right. I thought that was really profound.
1: Yeah, I I, I do think that uh, what we imagine in particular is what we see in the mirror. You know, Mm. that's true when we uh, go on a blind date. Uh, Our imagination is limited to our experience. And uh, that uh, is a pretty good approximation to what we might find on a blind date with other people because we share a common heritage to our genetic material with other people. But if you think about life that formed on a completely separate planet that had no contact with our planet, it could be completely different. It would shock us right. to meet that form of life right. that 's another reason that people might be frightened. you know they might say we don 't want to see something like that mm. you know just to give you an example in the dark in the middle ages you know the, there was this story of uh, Giordano Bruno uh, he argued that other stars are just like the sun and they have They could have a planet like the earth around them. And there could be life on that planet. And then the church burnt him on the stake. Mm. Because if there is life, they found it offensive. If there is life on another planet, then that life may have sinned. And therefore, it should have been saved by Christ. So you need duplicates of Christ's visiting all these different planets, you know, billions of them in the Milky Way galaxy. And that's unacceptable. So they burn the guy. So it just shows you that this concept of having others like us makes people uh, concerned and takes them out of their comfort zone. But my point is rather simple, that by ignoring reality, you don't change reality. You just maintain your ignorance. Mm. And we learn something from those philosophers that didn't listen to Galileo. I mean, they put him in house arrest, maintain their ignorance, and the earth continued to move around the sun.
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think also part of the thing is people like to think that they're important. And when you realize that we're not the only sentient beings... It, it, it is, you're right. It's ego, isn't it? It's all about ego and, and wanting to be the center. Exactly. Yeah. Humanity is in for a big wake-up, I feel. Some of humanity, not all of humanity, because there are, are definitely a few awake well, people. Well,
1: that, that, that's, uh, that's uh, the imp- one of the important messages in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there is one message that has to do with this particular object, Oumuamua, but the second has to do with the implications of finding evidence for a technological civilization out there and the fact that we should be modest in allowing for that. And, uh, you know, it's very unfortunate that right now the scientific culture uh, tries to maintain uh, what we learned in the past and feels that anything I- along these lines takes they- Takes it out of its comfort zone and and, and prefers not to discuss it. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can give you an anecdote that uh, there was a, uh, this object, Muamua was very strange and we will get to discuss it. But I attended a seminar about this object at Harvard University. And then when we left the the seminar room after the talk ended, one of my colleagues that worked for many decades on objects within the solar system, commented, uh, you know, this object, uh, Oumuamua, is so weird, I wish it never existed. And this kind of a statement should never be made by a scientist. If there is evidence for something that doesn't quite line up with what you expected, you should be happy, Mm. not sad, because it's nature's way of telling you that you need to revise your ideas. It's nature's way of telling you that you are learning something new. And by refusing to look at it, you're just maintaining your ignorance.
0: Mm. That's really interesting. Perhaps, speaking about science for the moment, perhaps you could explain to my listeners who may not understand what the scientific method is.
1: Right. So science is based on... I would say, on one main principle, and that's that follows Galileo Galilei that uh, pioneered this method, but uh, there is also a second aspect to it. So the first is uh, experiments, experimental verification. And here I'm talking about physics in particular, that uh, you can have ideas about how to explain things that we know, but uh, then you can, the, the, in principle, you should think about how to test those ideas and you can do experiments that would uh, shed more light on whether these ideas are correct or not. In particular, on many occasions, you might have the wrong ideas about explaining a phenomenon. For example, let me give an example of the Mayan culture. The Mayan culture uh, had the astronomers in the highest uh, societal status. Uh, they were given the the highest privileges. They were called the astronomer uh, priests. You know that they, they were really at very high regard, and uh, and the reason for that is because the politicians of the Mayan cultures culture thought that um, astronomy is useful to predicting the forecast of wars, for example, because the orientation of the planets or the stars they assumed, is somehow correlated with what happens here on Earth. And so Mm -hmm. they wanted the astronomers to forecast in advance where the planets would be in the future based on past data so that they can plan the timing of getting out to war, for example. uh, Nowadays, we call it astrology, thinking that events that occur on the sky are somehow related to what happens to us. Horoscopes are based on that. Okay, but there is no scientific value to such a link. Uh, We know that, you know, planets or stars move in the sky in a way that has nothing to do with what happens here on Earth. They have no influence on what happens. here. So going to war has nothing to do with the motion of a star or planet. They move by mainly uh, being affected by the force of gravity. Okay. anyway, but the Mayans had the wrong idea. And, you know, for many, many centuries, they looked at the sky, collected data, having the wrong idea about how to use that data. So the scientific method uh, changed that notion of having a prejudice and then collecting the data on the premise that this prejudice must be true. The scientific method says you need to test your idea. So for example, You can go to war when you think that the planets are not aligned the way they should. And you can go to war when they are aligned. And you can do it multiple times and see if indeed there is any correlation. Mm -hmm. And you will find that there is no such correlation. So the scientific method is about doing experiments that will test your idea. And uh, that's what Galileo pioneered. And, And, you know, sometimes nature is more imaginative than we are. And sometimes it's subtle and we just don't figure out the correct way of understanding it. And and so by having experiments give us data, we can figure it out. It's a learning experience. Mm -hmm. Now the other thing about science is that um, results need to be reproducible. So you can't have a miracle, a one-time event that you will never be able to test because then you can't tell if it's real or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just to give you an example, there is, in the Old Testament, there is this story that uh, Abraham heard the voice of God that told him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Now, if Abraham had a cell phone with a voice memo up, he could have pressed the button and recorded the voice of God. And then that is the scientific experiment. And then he could use that recording to convince everybody that God spoke to him. But instead, he didn't have a cell phone. So we have the biblical story, and we have to decide whether to believe it or not. Right. Because it was a one-time event. So science is about measuring things and being able to reproduce them. And that is an important constituent of science that makes it different from our daily life experiences, which sometimes are unique and special, and you can't really reproduce the conditions. And so... um, we learn about nature by uh, doing experiments and reconstructing the experiments and doing them again and again and and getting the same results.
0: Right. So it's consistency. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really good explanation. I really like the analogies you used as well. That made it quite clear. So
1: I I uh, just add one more thing that the amazing thing about the universe it's quite amazing and I find it remarkable. Most people take it for granted, is that what we uncover by experiments here on Earth, uh, the laws of physics, uh seem to be to apply all the way throughout the entire universe, the entire observable universe, the same laws of physics. So some people take it for granted. They say, Okay, well, we discovered these laws here, why wouldn't they apply everywhere? Well, just look at the societal laws that we invent. A lot of people do not obey them. Yeah. Uh, When I go in the morning to look at my daughter's rooms, they are a mess, you know, there is chaos. Uh, So the fact that the universe is so organized and follows the same laws everywhere should not be taken for granted.
0: Right. I really like the quote that you say about physics in your book. Over the years, I've come to believe that the law of physics is to apply in only two places, singularities in Hollywood. I thought that was, that was really funny. That really tickled me. I, I, I had to look up what a singularity was. <laughs> but yeah. uh, so let that, me explain.
1: I can I can please. explain in a very simple way. Um, basically, Einstein, Albert Einstein, came up with the theory of gravity that we currently use. Uh, it's called general theory for relativity, and it turns out that some of the solutions to his equations admit regions in space and time where the theory breaks down Mm -hmm. Uh, so the theory in a way forecasts where its limitation is so there are some circumstances for example if matter collapses to a point that's called the black hole Uh in the center of that region there is a point where the curvature of space and time diverges and Einstein's theory breaks down. That's called the singularity. The same is true about the Big Bang. You know, we know the universe is expanding. If we go back in time, there was the so-called Big Bang, a point in time where the density, when the density of matter was infinite everywhere. And at that point, we can't really tell what happened before because Einstein's theory breaks down. Mm. Now, Mm. what does it mean? It means that Einstein's theory is incomplete. There is something missing from it because if we had a complete theory of nature, then we would be, we would have no singularities. We would be able to figure out what's going on before the big bang, for example, and we know exactly what's missing. There is another pillar of modern physics called quantum mechanics Mm -hmm. and quantum mechanics is not unified with Einstein's theory of gravity. And so because of that, Einstein's theory fails. And we hope that if we, in the future, if once we figure out how to unify uh, the theory of gravity with quantum mechanics, so called quantum gravity, once we figure this out, we will avoid the singularities.
0: Ah, gotcha. I, I actually find quantum mechanics really, really interesting. I did an episode in my first season of my podcast on. Uh, the theory that some theoretical physicists have that this universe is a holographic reality. And I Mm -hmm. just actually found that absolutely fascinating, you know, the experiments that they did. But I'm digressing. So let's get on to Oumuamua, because this is absolutely fascinating. Have I I pronounced it properly?
1: Yeah, you did it right. And I should say that the the word Oumuamua means uh, a scout, or a messenger from far away in the Hawaiian language. And the reason it was chosen is because the observatory that discovered this object is situated in Maui, in Hawaii.
0: Right. And I understand that it was, let me see, the Pan-star.
1: Pan-stars, yes, exactly. This is a survey uh, of the sky uh, done by a telescope on Mount Haleakala in Maui. Uh, that I actually visited uh, with my family in July 2017 uh, when we were on vacation (laughs) in Hawaii. And um, it's a beautiful location. It's sort of uh, above the clouds, quite amazing. And uh, the purpose of this telescope was to find near-Earth objects, objects that could approach close to Earth because they endanger us. We know that the dinosaurs were extinct Uh, went extinct by a big rock that approached the earth, a rock roughly of the length of Manhattan Island. Mm. And um, uh, it must have been a beautiful sight to see it approaching, but the fun stopped when it hit the ground and basically killed not only the dinosaurs, but three quarters of all life forms on earth. Uh, And there was a complete change in the climate. And then, The dinosaurs, even though they had a big body, uh, they didn't have a large brain like we do. So we have our brain apparently is better for survival because we can have astronomers using telescopes and informing us of objects that may come close to Earth. And then, you know, if we see one of them that is as big as the one that killed the dinosaurs, we can design, uh, devise a plan on uh, how to deflect it before it approaches the Earth. So that's why the Panstars observatory was constructed. There was a, a task from Congress in the, in the United States to NASA to find to identify ninety percent of all the near Earth objects bigger than one hundred forty meters. Right. And um, and then uh, the PanSTARRS uh, telescope started this process of identifying them. And within three years, there would be a follow-up telescope that is much more capable, called the Vera Rubin Observatory. And it will identify about 60% of all these objects. So it, it will go two-thirds of the way
0: uh-huh. towards
1: the task towards fulfilling the task of Congress. But then PanStars in the process of surveying the sky found after a few years this object that was the first one to originate from outside the solar system that was spotted near earth so it's called the first interstellar object that was identified in the vicinity of the earth uh, and it was called the muamua and at first astronomers thought oh it must be just like the rocks that we have seen before from within the solar system so it could be a rock that was ejected from the neighborhood of another star
0: right
1: and uh, Turned out that it doesn't look like anything we have seen before.
0: Right. And I remember when it was all over the news, of course, it was very interesting and it caught my attention uh, when it was on the news. So you guys pretty much only spotted it as it was like leaving our system, is that correct?
1: Yeah, so it was discovered in, on October 19, 2017, on its way out. Sort of like having a guest for dinner and realizing that the guest is interesting when the guest leaves out of the front door into the dark street and it's a right. bit uh, too late. And this object was moving away from us faster than any rocket uh, that we can launch and we couldn't really chase it. And by now, it's actually a million times fainter than it was when it was passing near us. Uh, So we can't even see it. Uh, But during uh, a few months where it passed near the Earth, um, we collected some data that indicated that it's extremely weird. Uh, It didn't have a cometary tail, a, a trail of gas behind it, the way you get from a rock that is covered with ice. And that's most of the objects in the solar system are like that. When they pass close to the sun, they evaporate and you get this tail of dust and gas behind them. And we can easily see that. But in this case, we didn't see anything like it. So then astronomers said, okay, maybe it's just a rock. And the problem with that is the object exhibited an extra push away from Mm -hmm. the sun. And usually such a push is obtained from the rocket effect of evaporated gases that push it, but there was was no gas. The Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around this object and couldn't see anything, no carbon-based molecules, no dust, to a very uh, tight constraint on how much could evaporate from that object. And in order to get the push that it exhibited, you really needed about 10%, a 10th of the mass of the object to get evaporated, that's a lot. It was an object the size of a football field and we would have seen it easily if there was Mm. a standard cometary tail that takes away a 10th of the mass of this object. We haven't seen that. So, and and as it was tumbling every eight hours, uh, the brightness of the object changed by a factor of 10. And that implies, because it's simply reflecting sunlight, it implied that the object projected on the sky, was at least 10 times longer than it is wide. Imagine a piece of paper tumbling on the sky. You have a very small likelihood of seeing it exactly edge on. And if All you right. see it 10 times longer than it is wide, it means that indeed it has a very extreme geometry. And from the reflected light, it was figured that at the 90% confidence level, it's most likely flat, disc-like, or if you want, pancake-like. Mm -hmm. Not cigar-shaped the way it was depicted in one of the cartoons, the popular cartoon. So it must have been a flat thing. Then the question was, you know, how do you get such a thing from a natural origin? And in fact, what gives it the extra push? And uh, I wrote a paper with a postdoc of mine, Shmuel Bialy, where we suggested that it may be a sail, maybe a thin object. The only thing that I could think of that gives it this push is the reflection of sunlight, And in order for that to be effective, the object needed to be thin, sort of like a sail on a boat that is being pushed by wind, except here it's being pushed by reflecting sunlight. And this is called the light sail. And we are currently developing this technology for space exploration. The, The key advantage of it is that the spacecraft doesn't need to carry the fuel with it.
0: So it's kind of like, acts like a sail on a sailboat in the sea, except for it's the sun that propels it rather than wind.
1: Exactly. It's the reflection of light instead of the reflection of air molecules that oh, pushes it forward.
0: So how does, it, how, how does that actually work?
1: Oh, so um, we are currently developing this uh, technology and you can either use natural light produced by the sun to push on a sail. Uh, basically, the area of the sail relative to its weight is very large. And so you can get a significant push. If you have a rock, it doesn't get pushed much because the area of the rock relative to its weight is very small. And, but in a sail, the area is far greater Right. And you can either use uh, the, the, the sunlight light, or you can, in the context of a project that I'm working on, you can produce, uh, for example, a laser beam that is focused and pushes on a sail. And uh, that's a much, more, much stronger force that could act on a sail this way. And we are developing this technology in order to reach the nearest star, Proxima Centauri. Uh, on a relatively reasonable time scale, if you want to get there within two decades during our lifetime, the sail needs to move at a fifth of the speed of light because the distance to the nearest star is four light years. So it takes light four years. And if you want to get there in 20 years, um, then uh, you need to push the sail to a fifth of the, the, the speed of light. And, and that's possible if you focus a very powerful laser beam uh, on a light sail.
0: So with a murmur you say it was tumbling as it as it right. um, went through the sky. So was that tumbling effect because of the light sail? No.
1: Um, no. It was tumbling because it was tumbling from the start, you know, so things in space they preserve their motion. Okay. So if it was spinning, probably it was spinning because there were some forces acting on it along its history, you know. So it, it must have a long history because it entered the solar system given its uh, speed, you know, it, it entered more than 10,000 years ago. And uh-huh. uh, it spent probably millions of years or even billions of years in interstellar space. That's why I think it's probably not a functional device because imagine Voyager 1, Voyager 2, or, um, you know, New Horizons, those. Probes that we sent out into space that will exit the solar system. Right. After a billion years, they will be completely dysfunctional. They will be just space junk.
0: Mm, and
1: mm. Uh, it's just like walking on the beach, you know, when you see mostly uh, rocks and seashells that were naturally produced, but every now and then you stumble on a plastic bottle that implies that there is a civilization out there. But the plastic bottle is not functional anymore. You're not, you know, it's not being used for anything.
0: Right. Right. I remember reading in your book that you su- suggest that that it was, let me just check my notes, that it was uh, space junk or debris.
1: Right. Could have been waste, uh, uh, yeah. space, yeah, trash, so to speak. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. And and that I guess it's a valid point. But regardless of whether it's trash or not, it's still evidence, isn't
1: it? Yes, uh, just like a plastic bottle is evidence that it was not uh, that that uh, there is something beyond nature that is, there is a civilization that made it because nature doesn't make plastic.
0: Right, and the other thing that you mentioned in your book, <clears throat> excuse me, was the reflectivity of it, like it reflected like a metal rather than a rock.
1: Well, yeah, it was on the high reflectance end of all the objects we see. I mean, we do see other objects that have that reflectance, but it was at the high end of the distribution of objects that we see. And um, it also came from a very special frame of reference, uh, which is called the local standard of rest. And that is the frame of reference where that you get to when you average over the random motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So stars have relative motion and you get, if you average over them, you get to this so-called, you can think of it as a public parking lot uh, of the galaxy locally, where uh, if you find a a car parked there, you would never know which house it came from. Um, And so this object happened to be at rest in the local standard of rest and sort of like a buoy sitting on the surface of an ocean and the solar system was just like a giant ship that bumped into it Uh and only one in 500 stars are so much at rest in that frame so the question is why was it in that frame does it mean anything and you know if i have to think about it i would say you know one thing that it could mean is you have a grid of such objects a population of them filling up interstellar space and they are used for navigation. So if you have, if you're navigating through interstellar space, perhaps they give you your coordinates in some way, but we don't really know the nature of this object. Uh, And we need more evidence. And the way to make progress on this is to find more of the same. So if we wait a few years, we might find another one and another one. And then if we find one that approaches us, we can send a spacecraft with a camera that will take a close-up photo. And, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. So if we see something that doesn't look like a rock, we will know that it's a message in a bottle. We will know whether we are alone or not. And to me, the biggest question is, are we the smartest kid on the block? Are we the sharpest cookie in the jar? My guess is probably not.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I did read something the other day about another interstellar object, is it? Um 2i Borisov? Yes, two, two I self,
1: yes that was the second uh, interstellar object discovered, and it w- it looked just like a comet. So okay. this one looked exactly as we expected based on what we see in the solar system.
0: Oh, that's and, interesting. Yeah. So, sorry? sorry? Sorry, Avi, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, so that's quite interesting. So you have a comparison then. You can compare uh, Oumuamua to um, Borisov.
1: Yes. And people asked me, does it mean, don't you think, that, doesn't it convince you that if Borisov appears to be natural, just like the comets we have seen in the solar system, doesn't it convince you that uh, Oumuamua was also natural? And I said, you know, when I dated my wife on the first date, I thought that she's special and unique. The fact that I met many other women uh, over the years didn't change my opinion about my wife. So finding uh, Borisov doesn't say anything about Oumuamua. Just like uh, finding rocks on the beach does not say anything about the plastic bottle that you identify
0: Oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. So what sort of conclusions have you come, have you garnered from this? Or what, where do I'm trying to frame my question. Where do you go from here so far as that, that particular object goes? There's not, I guess, a lot more you can do about it because it was only a limited time that it was available.
1: Right. So we have all the data that we can have. Um, uh, We cannot get more data on Oumuamua, but what we can do is look for more of the same objects that appear weird, share similar properties to Oumuamua. And then when one of them arrives close to us, we should take a photograph or we should get as much data as possible about this object so that we can understand its nature. And uh, I think that would shed light on Oumuamua if we identify a class of objects that share similar properties. And you know, when I go to the kitchen uh, and I find an ant over there, uh, I get alarmed because Mm -hmm. I know that there must be many more ants in the kitchen. Uh, There is very small chance that just by looking at a small part of the kitchen, I found the only ant around. Right. And so the same applies to space. We found Oumuamua after a few years with PanSTARS, and we will find many more in the future. And uh, therefore, we can study this subject uh, experimentally and figure out what the nature of these objects is. My main message to my fellow scientists is to keep an open mind Mm -hmm. and search for possible messages in a bottle. It's a completely different method for finding evidence for other civilizations. In the past, we primarily looked for radio signals, Mm. but the disadvantage of a radio signal is that it's just like speaking on the phone, that you need the person on the other side to be alive in order to speak on the phone, right? Right. Um, However, if you get a letter in the mail, that letter can come, come from someone that is not alive anymore. Mm. So if you find an object that is a relic from another civilization, that civilization could be dead by now. Mm. It's sort of like doing archaeology, you know, uh, speaking about the Mayan culture that I mentioned before. It doesn't exist anymore, but we know about it from the relics that it left behind. Right. So searching for physical objects in space, which I call space archaeology, serves the purpose of finding things from the past that may not be around anymore. It's a much more powerful way of learning what may have existed, rather than looking for radio signals of what may exist right now. And I think that opens a completely new window into the search for technological signatures in space.
0: Oh, absolutely! And just for the listeners, because you broke up when you were saying the word, the word that Arthur used was uh, space archaeology, was it?
1: Yes, I call it space archaeology, which yes. is similar to what we do here on Earth in uh, an attempt to find cultures that are not around anymore, like the right. Mayan culture, by digging into the ground and finding relics that they left behind. We can also dig into space and search. For relics from civilizations that are not around anymore.
0: So, Avi, on a personal level, I oh, oh, on on a professional level, oh, actually, I'll get back to that. Um, the search for other objects. the The issue is that the. We could have had other objects already come and go, but we probably won't know because telescopes can only cover a certain area of the sky at a time. So what percentage of the sky can they cover at any one time?
1: So uh, the reason that Panstars discovered the first interstellar object is because it surveyed a large fraction of the sky and kept looking at the sky over a long period of time. Uh, previously, telescopes were looking at small portions of the tu- of the sky and had a small chance of identifying such objects. And uh, then the Vera Rubin Observatory will be even more effective than uh, pan was at finding new objects. And uh, it basically depends on the size of the telescope as to how faint of an object you can find. And and Pan-Stars yeah. will have a, a telescope much larger than, uh, sorry. And the Vera Rubin Observatory will have a telescope much larger than that of pan stars and therefore will be more sensitive to fainter objects. Right. Faint means the object could be smaller or at a greater distance from the sun. And so that will open up a bigger survey volume because the Vera Rubin Observatory can look farther out, but it could also, allow us to discover smaller objects that reflect less sunlight, even if they are close to us. And there might be many more of them. We don't know how many. And so um, in the future, the hope is that we will find many more interstellar objects and therefore we'll identify those that look unusual, those that look anomalous, and then study them very carefully and try to figure out if they are natural or artificial.
0: Very interesting. So when does this new uh, observatory come online?
1: So the Vera Rubin Observatory was planned to come online in a couple of years, but because of the COVID, the pandemic, uh, it was delayed, and it will start its operations in three years from now.
0: Wow, that's going to be pretty exciting for you all, for everybody, really. Very it's
1: exciting gonna- for people that are interested in the evidence, not in their prejudice.
0: It- Absolutely, absolutely. And that brings us to the personal the personal uh, level. I, I consider the fact that you've spoken out as actually a very brave thing to do, because I know that your views are is very hard to get past old boy old school mentality. Right. And for you to speak out like this with your observations and your hypothesis. Is a, is a bit like Galileo, really. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Well, um, the way I view it is as a service to the younger generation of tomorrow. I want them to be able to speak freely on this subject. And I do think that the public is extremely interested in this subject and the public funds science. So mm-hmm. science scientists have an obligation to address this question. Uh, and it's important also for humanity at large to get the correct perspective about our place in the universe and and our aspirations for space. Uh, All of this will affect our future. Imagine that we find evidence for another civilization. Uh, We will feel as if we are part of the same team as the human species, rather than be separated into nations that fight each other all the time. So I think it will have a huge effect, a huge impact on human history. It's the most important question that we should answer. And I don't really care how many likes I have on Twitter and whether my colleagues agree with me or not. In fact, I don't even have any social media presence. Um, I just try to keep my eyes on the ball. You know, there is this saying of basketball coaches, keep your eyes on the ball and not on the audience. Right. And uh, that's what I'm trying to do now. Obviously, I get a lot of pushback because it goes against the tendency of people to maintain the past Mm -hmm. and not to revise their notions based on anomalous objects like Oumuamua. And uh, I'm willing to suffer in that process, you know, because when I was young at age 18, I was drafted to the military and I I went through uh, the paratroopers uh, training and I remember saying that the soldier sometimes during a battle has to put his body on the barbed wire so that Mm. others can pass through. And I'm willing to do that so that the younger generation of tomorrow will, will be able to speak freely on this subject and not worry about their job prospects. And I really think that this should be center stage in the pursuit of astronomy. I don't see why it's regarded as speculative. When a lot of astronomers are working on, for example, the dark matter, we don't know what it is. And there are suggestions that maybe it's one form or another of matter, like weakly interacting massive particles or axions. And hundreds of millions are being spent in trying to search for those particles without any success. Mm -hmm. And why is that less speculative than investing hundreds of millions of dollars for searching for technological civilizations out there? I don't see any rationale behind it. I think in both cases, you're searching in the dark. In the case Mm. of dark matter, it's really dark.
0: Uh, Yeah, it is really dark. One of the things that stood out for me in your book talking about that was how you do encourage the younger generations. And let me see the questions you, where is I'm just trying to find it. Oh, yes. The thought experiment you use with your undergrad students, perhaps before we, we close, you could talk about that a little bit, because I think that's really great.
1: Yeah. So I asked the students in my class um, if a spaceship would uh, land and you would be asked to enter and go out farther, um, would you do it? And uh, they said yes, but to my surprise, they conditioned it. They said that they would do it under the condition that they will be able to share their experience on social media. And uh, I couldn't really understand that because I would do it just for the thrill of it, just for the experience. And I don't really care if anyone shares my experience. I just want to figure out what these aliens are like, what they do. And, um, so, I come from a different perspective, I guess, than the younger generation that wants to share everything, but that's okay as long as they board the ship, they might find out what's going on um so um, um yeah
0: so the question you gave them was if you if you if the aliens landed and they were friendly um and, you know, they proved hospitable, would you go with them if you knew it was a one-way trip? And right. as, and you said as long as they could text or share. share. And then you said uh, about if they go near a black hole, is that right? Right. And yeah. they couldn't send data out then.
1: No, they would not do it because it risks their lives. So, And also you can't really share your experience once you enter into the horizon of a black hole. Uh you're doomed to be crashed by, or or actually spaghettified by the tidal forces near the singularity of the black hole. Um, By the way, um, my wife said that if a spaceship ever lands in our backyard, she wants me to do two things. First, to leave the car keys with her. (laughs) And second, to make sure that they don't ruin the loan when they take off.
0: Your attitude that's really great <laughs> because she you knows you'd obviously go for a ride with them
1: <laughs> oh i would definitely go yeah.
0: <laughs> good for you so now for our listeners can you please tell us about where people can get your book to read to um purchase for themselves it's a really great book
1: so the book is called extraterrestrial and it's available on amazon um and any other bookstore
0: So there you go, guys. Uh, And honestly, it's a really great read. Uh, Normally, as I was saying before we started, I can read a book in two or three hours but your book it's taken me a while simply because i had to stop and think about what you were saying and then i had to go and research what you said it was a bit like writing a thesis really that's why it's taken me so long and i've got you can't see it but i've got pages and pages of notes that i've taken as i read your book just really interesting stuff that you wrote, like Oumuamua came from the direction of Vega, moving at about 58,900 miles an hour and over 20 million miles from Earth. And just like different things like the Pan Stars, I, I looked that up. So it's really interesting, really educational and... Some of your quotes, like the odds of Oumuamua being a naturally occurring comet composed of 100% hydrogen ice that outgasses from one location, producing a smooth acceleration, about the same as the odds of natural geological processes producing a space shuttle.
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and you know, I think about this subject or any other subject in 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 science. As if I were a kid, you know, all the labels that I have, all the leadership positions that I have, are not as much fun. In fact, they're a burden. Uh, the joy of trying to figure out what nature is is really what drives me, and uh, I don't see myself any different than a farm boy some fifty years ago.
0: With that curiosity. I can, I can see yeah. that and I can see your passion for this. Avi, thank you so much for your time today. I've absolutely enjoyed listening to you. I have been so looking forward to this conversation and honestly when I first emailed you I didn't expect a response. I didn't <laughs> expect a response, you know, because Well
1: I I speak with everyone, you know, when when a plumber comes to my home, we can spend hours talking about his uh, private life and um, you know I don't science is not on a pedestal science is a way of life Mm -hmm. and um, I just think that it should be accessible to anyone
0: that's awesome Avi thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us today and I appreciate it immensely thank you Mary very grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with Arvi. a conversation I really enjoyed. His book, Extraterrestrial, is a really good read, but not one that you can read in one sitting. It's a book that you need to read and then think about what he said, do some research and read some more. At least, for me, that's how it was. A great book. I thoroughly recommend it. Available from all leading bookstores. On a more personal note, I've never made any secret of my knowing of extraterrestrial life, in fact, of intelligent extraterrestrial beings, of my lifelong and face-to-face interaction with such beings. So I have to say that for me, it was a really interesting perspective to have a scientist talking to me about his belief in an extraterrestrial object, therefore, extraterrestrial life. It's a very rare scientist in the field of astronomy who will speak out about accepting such things as life existing elsewhere. Although many will suggest it might be the case, few will actually believe it, even when evidence such as Oumuamua might appear. But as Avi said earlier in the episode,
1: To the physical universe, we are one out of Billions of planets around billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and we are not special at all. And that Milky Way galaxy is one out of trillions of galaxies that we can see throughout the universe. So, the number of planets similar to Earth orbiting a star similar to the Sun, roughly at the same separation, is more than the number of grains of sand on all beaches and on Earth. So see it. So it just shows you that this concept of having others like us makes people uh, concerned and takes them out of their comfort zone. But my point is rather simple, that by ignoring reality, you don't change reality. You just maintain your ignorance. And we learned something from those philosophers that didn't listen to Galileo. I mean, they put him in house arrest, maintain their ignorance, and the Earth continue to move we around the sun. We are
0: living in very, very interesting times, and I feel that the next few years are going to be most interesting for humanity and our being a part of a greater intergalactic community. But the question is, what do you think? our bumper music this episode is called Space Force. I want to mention my patrons and thank them for their ongoing support of this podcast. If you want to become a patron of the show then head over to patreon.com forward slash 15 and sign up now. As a patron you get access to a special members only page on the podcast website www.walkintheshadowlands.com from which you can download full transcripts of each episode. You also have access to some interview bits that may not make the episodes and little extras as I have time to create and add them for you. You also get early access to the shows before everyone else gets to hear them. Also, you have my absolute gratitude and appreciation, so what are you waiting for? Go to patreon.com forward slash mcc15 and sign up now. The continued support of my patrons makes it possible for me to financially cover part of the cost of producing this show for you all, so thank you all so much. If you have any suggestions for topics you might like me to cover in upcoming episodes, then please don't hesitate to email me, or if any of you have any questions, suggestions, or any comments that you'd like to make, or experiences that you might like to share with myself or my audience, or if you feel you might be a good fit as a guest on my podcast, then just email me at yahoo.com or check out the Be A Guest page on the podcast website. Check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name, and our Twitter feed, at Shadowlands10. Like and follow for hints on our upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating, and don't be shy to leave a written review on your chosen podcasting platform, or on the podcast Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, And of course, so you don't miss out on any episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. The podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms and iHeartRadio as well. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words, open Walking the Shadowlands, and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkintheshadowlands.com. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. Thanks for listening to this episode, Kakite Ano koe. I'll see you again.
1: Thanks for listening.